How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning back into the podcast. And if it's your first time, do me a favor, click the subscribe button on whatever platform it is that you listen on. And uh, if you enjoy it, tell a friend. You can also follow along on social media at that curious Jones and uh, let us know what you think. Leave a review. Tell me what other guests I should be having on. Love to hear from you. And I do want to apologize. I'm coming over a little bit of a head cold. So uh, my voice is a little, uh, a little off, a little off, but um, I don't talk a whole lot. Shaka does the talking. So uh, don't hold it against him. Today's episode's a special one. Uh, it's September 11th, 2021. It's the 20th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, Flight 93, which crashed only a short distance away from where I'm sitting here in Pittsburgh, PA. A lot of lives that were lost and a lot of war that ensued. And my guest is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. He enlisted at 17 and served four years in Afghanistan and returned back to America to pursue civilian life in the fitness world and got a phone call from a friend who asked him to come back uh, in a private capacity to assist the Peshmerga in Northern Iraq uh, in the fight against the ISIS caliphate. And he sold everything he had and boarded a plane and went over there to help rid that part of the world of a heinous evil that I don't think it's possible for us to really understand. And so um, it's really great to have a conversation with someone who directly was involved in uh, the work that led up to what we're going through right now with this uh, exit from Afghanistan, uh, you know, and where there's a lot of uh, private citizens who are going over there today to try to help get Americans and our allies and others out of harm's way because of the ruthless and barbaric nature of who's now in control. And so uh, we talked a lot about that experience, what it was like for him, uh, and why that is such a foundation in what he's doing now in 10th Planet Austin, where he's an amateur mixed martial artist who's uh, on the upcoming. And uh, some of what he gets from that, from a camaraderie standpoint, and you know, we talked about a few other things, his relationship with his father, which I really resonated with. Um, I have a whole new respect for my dad after having him on this podcast. And uh, I think he shares some similar perspectives that I have. So uh, great, great episode. And I couldn't be more thrilled to get this out today, September 11th. Uh, I think uh, we owe people like Shaka a lot for the fight that they put up for our freedom. Please give it up for my guest, Shaka Curtis. But before we enjoy this episode, a quick shout out from the sponsor of this podcast, Action. If you're not familiar with Action, you need to go to drinkaction.com. That's Action spelled with a K. And check out the assortment of specialty roast coffee imported from Guatemala that's small batch roasted in Austin, Texas and shipped directly to your doorstep upon your order as well as the natural supplements, things like CBD and turmeric and MCT oils, things that are naturally occurring in the world, but that have a tremendous effect on health and well-being, inflammation, and uh, things that I take on a daily and that Shaka takes, actually. So uh, go to drinkaction.com. If you sign up for a subscription, you'll save 20%. And uh, if not, you can use code word curious and you'll save 15% off. That's drinkaction.com, code word curious, and enjoy this episode. But I got to tell you, it's, uh, this is a fun one for me to come back to. Um, first and foremost, you know, I think given the time, the day and age that we're in, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you so much for your service. And I want to dive into your background because I think it's pivotal to where I want to take the conversation, 
which is to my newfound obsession around jujitsu. And I know we share that, but um, I've got some assumptions that I'd love to understand if I'm correct on that, you know, jujitsu brings you some things that you may have maybe lost after leaving the service, the brotherhood, the camaraderie, uh, things of that nature. So I'd really be curious to your perspective and, you know, whatever else, but am I, am I correct? You're a former Marine, correct? Yes. I served from 2009 to 2013 in the Marine Corps. Okay. Um, after the Marine Corps, uh, I got into like working gyms and like I became a, a manager of gold for a while and then ISIS popped up and I got a phone call from, uh, a civilian group who wanted a team leader to go out there and work with uh, some of the Peshmerga with the ninth brigade in uh, Northern Iraq, totally um, no pay involved. I had to sell everything that I owned to buy the gear and the tickets uh, to get out there. And I went out there and worked with uh, the Peshmerga to defeat ISIS in the uh, Northern part of Iraq. Wow, man. I didn't realize it was like that. So you, how old were you then when you enlisted? Are was that like straight out of high school or college that I was 17. Oh shit. <laughs> what drove that? Was there something inside of you that just said, this is the direction I want to go or not at all. I went to the Marines because I wanted money to go to college. And, um, my, my, my dad, um, never let me know about a, a college fund for me. So, uh, I, uh, I had finished mowing the lawn, which was like an acre of lawn, and I sat down by that fire, and my dad came and joined me. I looked up at him, and I said, Dad, Dad, you don't have any money for me to go to college, do you? And he said, nope. I think you should go into the Army. And I said, eh, I'm going into the Marines. And he said, okay. And uh, that was my last time living in Maryland. I got everything set up, and I was off. Is your dad former military? Yeah, my dad was in the Army as well. He was a, a paratrooper with the 82nd, I believe. And uh, that was that was pretty cool because I'd never seen my dad in that light. So, like, even though I was in the Marines and my dad was in the Army, uh, I felt like I was kind of walking in his footsteps for a good part of what we were doing there. The big difference was he jumped out of helicopters, uh, I believe. And me personally, they offered me the opportunity, but I've always hated heights. Uh, <laughs> I've conquered that in a number, a number of situations, that particular fear, but I, I don't like to do it unless I need to. <laughs> it's really interesting the perspective that you probably gain I, I think I mean you kind of allude to it like as far as maybe understanding your dad a little bit more on a different level I uh, for me my understanding of my dad came more so after the military okay. because my dad my dad's an incredibly special human being I think all parents um, who went into the military are special human beings, especially the ones who um, didn't get disability afterwards, the ones who didn't get help afterwards. I think uh, my dad found a way after the military to marry a woman, stay with her. He's still with her to this day. They've been together for 27 or 28 years and raise four kids on whatever income he had and ultimately bought a house and my dad just started his own franchise of uh, an auto repair shop. And it's oh, just wow. like knowing what my dad went through to get to that point versus the path that I'm taking, I, I can't be more appreciative of his journey for sure. Um, me personally, I am a disabled veteran. Um, I've been receiving support from the military since the time that I left for PTSD and I will for the rest of my life. Um, and I have had, and I will continue to build more freedom for myself than my father got to see at any time up until this very point. And even now he's working his tail off at that job. You know, he's uh, he started his own business and he didn't intend and he doesn't intend on slowing down at all. Me, I'm, I'm pursuing being a, an amateur cage fighter and, you know, working with uh, local businesses to support them while supporting myself. So we took totally different paths, but I, I, can't, I can't appreciate him enough. Same for me, man. Like I think about as a child, um, I didn't realize and I still like to your point, I don't know how my parents did it. I'm, I'm the oldest of four boys. 
we were not, we were not well off. Uh, and we came from a small little depressed town in Northwestern Pennsylvania, where it was rare to find somebody that had a house that was over $50,000 and, you know, a family that had a net income over $30,000, you know, I mean, it was poor. And uh, my dad was, had his own business as well, but didn't pay himself much. And I didn't realize how broke we were until I got older and was like, oh shit, like <laughs> we, we didn't have a whole lot. But to your point, like they, they worked their ass off. They took second job. My mom worked as a bartender. My dad would, you know, pick up cash work on the weekends to make sure that, you know, football was paid for and baseball was able to be done in this camp or that camp. And I, I've been blessed with so many opportunities that my dad didn't have, but he didn't even have the opportunity to have because he was laying a foundation for me. And it sounds like very similarly, albeit in a different way, you know, for you, but I, I can certainly relate to that a lot and I have tremendous respect for my parents. And, you know, I kind of am embarrassed of myself the times that maybe I was hard on them as a younger person, because I didn't have that perspective. And I'm like, man, not only were they going through it, but then here's this little cocky, you know, 12 year old that's like, doesn't have a clue. And they didn't break, you know, they didn't burden me with those problems. I, I had no idea. They could have like made me feel bad for even asking, but it never was that way. You know? Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to say about my dad is, uh, when I got, when I got back to, um, back to home and I didn't, I don't visit home very often. I don't get the chance to, but, um, I got back to visit my dad and, uh, me and my dad smoked a joint together and, he gets to he gets to telling me about when uh, they were home while I was in Iraq, and he, he gets to telling me about how he saw me on PBS in full kit, and uh, my dad my dad's face changed and his voice started to tremble, and I saw his fist shaking, and uh, it looked like he was gonna hit me, because because I was there and he he was able to interpret the danger that I was in, and it, it was the first time. It wasn't necessarily the first time that I knew I was loved, but it was the first time that I knew what that meant. Like if I died out there, I'd have taken something from him, something that I didn't need to take from, uh, from him. And I didn't know that that was one of the consequences of what I was doing. And uh, seeing my dad react that way to me being in Iraq changed my whole perspective on our entire relationship I, I i didn't i didn't know the the gravity of what that was for them back home and i think that's important for not just veterans but service members to know you know like they may not call they may not be there as much as we'd like for them to be there and we sure as hell can't be there as much as we'd like to be there but that doesn't mean that the love isn't deeper than anything we could imagine um there was this one moment when when I, I think it was when I turned 27 and like in my head, I was like, Oh, I remember when my dad was 27 and like, I was like, Oh, he had three kids, <laughs> he had three kids at 27. Oh man. I just, it just blows my mind. Like there's um, with me, I have a, I have a routine. I've developed a routine around being, better at fighting and being a better strategist when it comes to fighting and it, it involves a strict midday nap <laughs> and a, a six o'clock wake up you know six o'clock wake up midday nap and i go to sleep when i want and like my my dad would freaking laugh at that he'd laugh at that today <laughs> but it's working you know i've been hearing a lot about you from the folks that i know at 10th planet obviously trying to support you and your come up and uh I was shocked because I mean, dude, it's not a lot of, you're, you're in your early thirties, right? You're a little younger than me. Oh, uh, 29, 29. Okay. <laughs> so you're younger than I thought, but still you're, you're a lot older than a lot of guys who enter into cage fighting. You're uh, there's, there's something burning deep inside of you that makes you want to challenge yourself in that way and put yourself into that battle. I mean, can you quantify that? I mean, is, is, is it quantifiable or is it just shotgun? There's, there's a core of my being that involves understanding self-defense and the defense of others. Um, 
in my early adult life or my earlier adult life, um, going into the military was initially to go to college, but I had heard about what was going on with the Taliban and what was going on in Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, I still remember where I was during 9-11 in my fifth grade class. And I felt like what I would do in the military would, would not necessarily make me at peace with that, but I'd be able to say that I did my part. And I think that's the same type of thing that got me to go back when ISIS came up. Um, when I was in Afghanistan, I, I was shot at, but I didn't see combat. There was no back and forth of bullets, you know, and um, all that built up energy to go fight for what I believe in and not have the opportunity to, to do so uh, kind of made me feel really empty. And I, I talked about, I talked to therapists about it and stuff like that, but talking about it doesn't necessarily resolve it. So I went, I went back out there when uh, ISIS came up and when I was there, I got to do my work. I got to, I got to make contact. I got to, you know, bullets back and forth and stuff like that. And um, when I got back, I thought that that desire for combat and for the, the, uh, the desire to preserve myself against a force would have been, you know, quenched, but it wasn't, it wasn't at all. You know, I, I, uh, I, it would, it would spill out in situations that weren't as constructive as jujitsu. Like I was a guy who would go out and get drunk and go get into bar fights. I was the type of guy who would go talk smack to people in Walmart and see if they were going to do something. And uh, jujitsu specifically put me into that place of peace where I could express that part of myself without being a danger to others. So I'm one, I'm one of those guys who say, who can say that jujitsu saved his life because of that. That's so cool. I can't say that it's done this like to that level for me, but I'm, trust me, I never was the guy that looked for problems, but I always found myself being there to like clean them up, which if I really stepped back, I probably was looking for the opportunity to do that. Like I never wanted to be the bully, but damn man, if somebody's bullying somebody, I'm going to be the guy to go over and get in the middle of it, stick my nose where it doesn't belong sometimes, you know, uh, getting mad at people driving just those, those like, bursts of rage. Right. And mm -hmm. I find myself doing that so far less, you know, just being able to get on the mats two, three days a week, um, and with my schedule and that does help, you know, I, I, I don't, a, I don't have the energy I'm driving home from class. I'm like, cut me off, man, <laughs> by all means, you know, but <laughs> there's also, I think a lot of what people's emotions, you know, you see somebody blowing up and you see it a lot now, you know, whether it's even just societal pressure you know, the fear of this whole COVID shit, people's fear elicits a response. And, you know, when you shift it back to what we were talking about, you know, like conflict, somebody cuts you off. It's just like, there's a level of confidence that you have with yourself that doesn't make my first move now be to puff out my neck, right. To try to scare somebody because it's like, if I'm being honest with myself, I think I never wanted it to get to the place where it may have went. So I was trying to stop it. Right. You're, you're trying to like, you know, kind of be a peacock a little bit or, you know, roar like a lion. But when you have that confidence in yourself that if shit goes sideways, I can defend myself. You don't, you don't need to get ahead of those problems. You don't need to flex on it to, to try to scare it away. Yeah. There's a, there's a thing that I had to come to understand as a veteran. Um, that really helped me to get a better understanding of, uh, of civilians. The, the capacity for stress that they have had to deal with is completely different. The scale of uh, stress that they've had to deal with is completely different. Like there were situations that I would handle um, because of the things that I experienced as though they were life or death. And then when I learned that I should not handle those situations as life or death, I learned that civilians were handling it as if it were by life or death. And a lot of times I was reflecting that back at them. But like, like you said, with uh, someone getting cut off on the highway, that 
that person getting cut off on the highway and screaming at you out of the window, that's their 10, man. That's, that's the, that's the harshest. That's the worst. That's the most difficult thing that they have experienced that week. Probably, you know what I mean? For me, like there, there's so much more, there's so much more that I've seen. There's so much more that I can do. And because they don't know that they're expressing it to that extent, I can't hold them beholden. I can't hold them to that, that standard. You know what I mean? They don't know that they're not dealing with a life or death situation. That's scary to hear in the sense that we're in a world where we're taking away challenges from people, you know, like we've nerfed the world. Nobody has challenge. We've eliminated it because challenge is bad, but it's challenge that I know has, you know, whether it's the struggles as a child or the struggles that come in jujitsu class by having people ragdoll me around or the challenges that I hold my own self to, you know, making sure that I follow a, a schedule, get my ass to the gym, take care of myself, devote the time to my businesses that I need to. I don't make excuses around those. And we, we have nothing but excuses in this world to limit the discomfort that people feel. And I don't think that they do that knowing what the ultimate result on themselves and ultimately society is going to be. Yeah. And I, I think it, I think for me, when I, I think the, the pivotal point uh, for the masses was the point where speech became violence. That's such a, that's such a, a, a bold line to cross because when speech becomes the equivalent of physical attack, physically attacking someone, and someone responds to speech as if they're being physically attacked, there's an overall weakening of the idea of what an attack is. And uh, I think that's where a lot of, especially like these college age guys, these younger guys coming up uh, who are wanting so badly to fight against some greater evil. I think that's where a lot of that comes from. They, they put speech in the realm of violence. Yeah. I wonder how many of those people have ever been socked in the mouth, right? Like, <laughs> Because to your point, they don't, if somebody really knew violence, they wouldn't ever put those things and compare them on the same level. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> so I, I want you to kind of take me back. So you, you come out of the military, right? You go through your four years and come back to civilian life. And then you get this phone call um, to head over there. And I mean, it, it actually, it sounds very similar in a, in a different way, but to what guys like Tim Kennedy and others are doing right now as civilians heading over to Afghanistan to assist with something that unfortunately our government has decided isn't as important right now. Um, I mean, can you walk me through? Cause that's a, I mean, dude, to sell your stuff and go back over into a danger field. I don't know how I could, I, I don't know if I could do that. I would like to say that I could, that'd be hard. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I had been working to teach people to personally, to, to be a personal trainer and then to teach people to be a personal trainer. And that, uh, that instinct had come from what I did as a, in the military, you know, in the military, you got teenage kids teaching teenage kids to be an adult. And I held on to that even after I had gotten into the civilian world, I was teaching adults to take care of their bodies. And I was putting seriousness behind it the way I would have put seriousness behind it when I was training someone while I was in the Marines. But even when I had become financially stable, even when I had become, um, when I had gained notoriety for my gift in training people, um, I still felt empty. And then, the ISIS caliphate started to grow and they were saying that they were there to fight the holy war. And in my head, it's a little crazy, but in my head, this was, if this was the holy war, I'm going to get there first. And I know that my brothers and sisters in, in uh, the military were going to come behind me eventually. So I had always thought that we were going to go to engage ISIS on a full scale front. 
Um, and my one of my close friends from the military gave me a call and he was like, hey, man, we're out here and we're going to go to Missoula and it'd be super helpful if you would come out here because I know you know handle, how to handle these types of situations. My job in the military was as a foreign advisor team mentor. And what that means is that I would embed myself with foreign militaries, understand their cultures, learn their language, and learn to mentor them in a way that would help them to be more, not necessarily Americanized, but effective as a force against something like ISIS. And the Peshmerga at the time were the most effective at fighting. Um, but my buddy, he was a grunt. You know, he's a machine gunner. He's a good grunt. But he's a grunt and he wanted uh, me to come out there and support him and, you know, coordinate with uh, with the Peshmerga. And at first I said no. Um, but then he told me he had gotten into a firefight. And selfishly, that was the one part of Afghanistan that I did not get to experience. I never fired my weapon. I did a lot of yelling. I did a lot of like uh, hearts and minds work. But when it comes to eliminating the threat that was at hand. I had never gotten the opportunity to do that. Um, I wanted to protect my brother and there is no satisfaction that I got um, out of being a personal trainer or being a manager of personal trainers. There's no, there's no dopamine response. I got no zing out of that. So um, I had a girlfriend at the time. Um, she took care of the dogs. I canceled my lease early and uh, I sold what I could and what I couldn't sell, I threw away. And I used it to get, uh, I got uh, the vest for uh, bullets, but you can't, you couldn't get the sappy plates because uh, the sappy plates meant you were a combatant and they would send you back. Um, I didn't, I, I got a butterfly knife, a beautiful butterfly, a little, little thing. And then um, I got the magazines and stuff. And I went over there, um, and honestly, I didn't know that how serious he was. I thought that we were going to get out there and he was going to be kind of BSing and we were going to be doing like volunteer work around the outside and setting defenses for people. And uh, it wasn't until I got into O'Hare Airport in Chicago where they, they, they do all the local flights on the top floors but the flights to the Middle East are in, uh, in this basement, <laughs> in the basement of this airport. And they have uh, a lot of Middle Eastern people there. And it was the first thing that I saw that was like, okay, this isn't America anymore. It was in Chicago. And I was like, okay, we're not in America anymore. All the men were together. All the women were on a separate, in a separate area. And the women weren't as like American women would be. Like you could tell that the women were people who had spent time with just each other. You could see that the camaraderie between the women totally separate from the men, even if they were married and their husbands were there, their husbands with, were with the husbands, the women were with the women. And they, were, they, had like a, they had like a childlike joy to them, like a childlike hee hee hee, you know, type of, type of thing to them. And I was just like, okay, that's different. <laughs> and we got on, I got onto the plane. It was a 16 hour flight. And there was this guy who was like following me. And by the way, the, I did speak to the FBI on the way there. They want to make sure I'm not a terrorist or some crazy kid going out there to join ISIS or anything. And um, I want to thank them for their service too. They did a great job, but uh, we get on the plane and I felt like this guy was following me and I'm watching him. He's watching me. And I'm like, bro, if, if you're going to do this on the plane, we can do this on the plane. I'm ready for 9-11. I've put that shit in my head over and over again, you know, but to protect myself from that type of situation, I, uh, I sat next to an imam and I spent 16 hours on that plane reading uh, the first quarter of the Quran. I think I read the first six books with him and um, I was blown away. The, the greatest problem in the Middle East is that the majority of the people fighting have never read the Quran. The first four books of the Quran say that the words of the Quran will be misused to, uh, to disillusion people into things that are not positive. That's the first four books of the Quran. So to me, as a person who's about to go over there and deal with this, it's just like, 
wow, <laughs> you know? Okay, so someone saw this coming and here we are living it. I get over there, I call my buddy and he's like three, four hours away in the middle of Iraq. And I'm like, okay, where are you? And he's like, okay, so what's gonna happen is you're gonna look for this guy, his name is Nazad and he's got a lightning bolt uh, birthmark in his hair. So what type of Harry Potter BS am I gonna find the lightning bolt uh, birthmark in his hair? And uh, <laughs> lo and behold, this guy's got a lightning bolt birthmark shooting up the center of his hair. And uh, he picked me up. And um, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I was terrified. I had a, you know, you know what a karambit is? I don't. A karambit is like a, a cat claw knife that spins around your pointer finger. And I had a karambit on the time on my hip. So like while I'm going on this four-hour ride after I just got after a 16-hour plane flight, I'm clutching a harambit so tight that my uh, my hand is getting bruised, and I'm sitting back trying to look relaxed for the rest of my body while we're on this trip to go to the base that we're going to go stay at in the Middle East. And that was my introduction to being in Iraq. So who's ultimately coordinating this? Is there like a, like a group... Cause I, you know, as I'm listening to what's happening now, obviously different, but sounded like Tim and Chad and the other guys that went over to Afghanistan had a kind of U S based uh, logistics group that was kind of coordinating things, obviously a much bigger operation. Um, but how did that, how does that work? I mean, is, is it just like you guys and, or do you have some sort of infrastructure that's kind of helping you support? Or are you tapping into U.S. military when you have the opportunity to do so? Yeah, what, I want to be very clear. What Tim's doing is a thousand times more professional, um, a thousand times more above water, and it's got much, much more eyes on it than what we were doing. Um, you're, when I went over there... Have you ever seen like a really crappy website that was just like, you didn't spend any money on this? Yeah, yeah. That's where I found my contact for this. It was a website called Frame, that, which has been taken down since. Um, and my real coordination when I had gotten there was through a lieutenant assigned by one of the generals who were there. So like, I never knew who made that website. I never knew how they made it. Um, I really was going out there on the prayer of having been in contact with my buddy who, you know, his phone could have been stolen. Um, he could have been uh, captured and I could have been getting emails from like strangers and stuff like that. I, I was going out there blind, but you know, um, God blessed him and the backing that he has behind him and the, the team that he has behind him, because not only is he doing something that's much more professional, he's going to be a lot more effective than we could have ever been. Yeah. Sure. Brings a little to light the, the fear. I mean, shit, dude, I know getting off the plane at LAX and taking an Uber <laughs> down to like, down like the Orange County area, I've had some moments where I'm like, okay, I'm a little sketched out right now. And that's in America all above board using you know like actual companies and apps and things like that i mean trying to like wrap my head around a to your point like not i didn't realize like this is all like email and text message so to your point you could have been set up the whole time or you get somewhere and can't find somebody i mean you're taking a huge risk to go over and do that yeah um working with the imam um I learned to like, not necessarily recite the Quran, but like I could read enough to be able to communicate with someone. And the problem, the biggest problem with what I was doing was that I'm undeniably American. If I go anywhere, I'm undeniably American. And under those circumstances, if I were to have been picked up by the wrong person, for example, which happens all the time. ISIS uh, will wear the police uniforms of Iraqi police. They'll wear the military uniforms of um, armed soldiers. Um, if I had gotten in the wrong car, it would have been one situation or the other, and we would have had to fight our way out. 
um, one of the rules that we had as a team when I had gotten out there was that we would always save one bullet. We had a bullet within the stitch of our, uh, within the switch, the stitch of our vest, and it was always pointed down. And ISIS at the time, this was when they were setting people on fire on video, beheading people, drowning people. Um, but I think something that a lot of people don't know is added into that mix is that they rape people. You know what I mean? So like if we're if we're captured in that situation, um, we had one to be able to finish the job ourselves rather than be captured. Because at the end of the day, um, we would rather have gone out on our own terms than under the terms of ISIS. And um, that pact with the, the people that we had gone out there with put things into a real light, especially for the civilians who had gone out there without any military experience. Like it was, it was strange to me that some people went out there uh, for clout, um, which is something that's not nearly as possible today. Um, there's a lot more security involved. Um, once again, thanks Tim for doing it the way he did it. But when we were out there, there were a lot of people who didn't know what they were doing and they were trying to do what they were doing on social media. And for us, the guys who had experience, operational security was one of the most important things in the world. Because of the way that things public, there were a lot of there were a lot of people who were put in danger that shouldn't have been. Like my family members, for example, got uh, messages on Facebook from ISIS members who were trying to find out where my family was and things to that extent. And that that was something that kind of put me over the edge so far as rage goes because initially it was a stranger that you were attacking an American but a stranger but at that point I realized that it was my family that uh that they were trying to get a hold of and you know try to get in contact with and that's when I that's when I knew I had to finish what I was doing out there is it possible for people to understand how brutally barbaric these people are and I ask you that because I mean there's been some recent things happening uh, you know, Texas, right? Abortion laws. And I saw some comments, social media comments. I should just know better than to even look, but it's people talking about how, you know, this analogy, like Texas is basically like the Middle East now, like trying to compare some of these laws and changes into, you know, that's how they are in the Middle East. And I think that's very ignorant. Um, especially, you know, and I, I've never been there. I, I have imagined what it would be like. And I know that I can't possibly scratch the surface of what someone like yourself probably saw witnessed, and was over there fighting to end. Right. So to see people make comments like that, I'm sure just for a reaction um, and making an analogy, but I think it's, uh, it's not wise to try to draw those types of correlations, especially when you can't possibly understand how people are and why they're motivated to do what they do. The, the baseline for Americans is completely skewed. There is no way, un unless you see it, unless you see it and even saying it now, it doesn't seem real the baseline for what we experience and what we are endangered by and what we can encounter and have to be cautious of is nothing compared to the things that they have to be cautious of. Um, when I was, when I was uh, in the Marines and sitting on post, um, I threw a water bottle out of my post to a bunch of kids. Someone have water, you know, I'm learning how to, how to work with the kids and how to have influence on them in a positive light because, you know, they didn't always see positive Americans out there. You know what I mean? And um, I threw the water bottle clearly to one kid. Another kid walks up, takes the water bottle from him and then starts walking away. The first kid picks up a rock and tries to beat the second kid to death with a rock. And these kids are seven and nine years old ish. You know what I mean? Um, and that's their baseline. That's where they started from. And if I hadn't been there, one, they wouldn't have got the water bottle. But if that water bottle had been like a piece of chicken or something like that, one of those kids would have been severely injured over that piece of chicken. It would have gone to that point over that piece of chicken. And that's where it starts for a lot of them. 
So it's like, it's completely outside the realm of reality for our youth to understand the types of things that these, these kids have experienced and what they've grown up with. How long were you over there for this? For the Iraq, uh, yeah. for the Iraq visit, it was for three months. Three months. And when you see like this whole, I'm just going to say disaster because that's what it seems like. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of perspectives. I think I keep going back to Tim. It's just, uh, you know, there's that Austin uh, tie. I've had him on the podcast. I, I'm just so much admiration for him and all others, right? He gets a lot of notoriety because of his celebrity, but everybody liked that. Um, but I've heard people say, hey, look, as veterans, we know that our work was not in vain. But the level of frustration, I mean, my wife and I were talking about it the other day. When you went over there, to your point, we were watching videos online constantly of people being captured, torture videos. I mean, it was everywhere. Uh, it's all we talked about. We lived in fear. I thought about it going out to dinner at times, like, man, oh man, is somebody going to walk up and just start shooting people because it's a sleeper cell here in the city? Like it, it was on everybody's mind. And then through force, through military intervention, through people like yourself that said, you know what, I want to go over there and make a difference and, and try to save people to try to help this situation. I mean, I, for the last four or five years, I mean, it's, you haven't heard a damn thing about it. And I, I'm sure some of that is, you know, it's not that it's been completely eradicated, but we've done a great job of eliminating a lot of evil and saving a lot of lives. Is, do you see this going back to a place where people are going to have to go back over and, and put their lives on the line to save innocent people from having to go through that shit again? because of how we're kind of just saying, you know, peace out? I think the potential is much greater for, um, for worse things to happen. I don't think, I don't think that we'll, we'll click, we'll, we'll quickly, quickly revolve back into the Middle East the way that we were. Um, I think the, a lot of that has to do with the politicians trying to protect their names. I think a lot of that has to do with um, military personnel trying to protect their positions. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot that went over there that was simply for the sake of politics, playing with people's lives. And um, given that the Taliban has the power of a nation state, given that they have the power to not just negotiate with uh, countries around them, but negotiate with us. Because before we left, um, we asked permission. <laughs> we asked permission for them to, to let uh, civilians fly out. We asked permission for them to let our interpreters go out and win as far as given a list of the people who we'd like to be free. Um, I think the potential is much worse than uh, when I went out there originally. I pray every night, man. You know, yeah. I really do. I, uh... The other half of that coin is that we're Americans and we're, uh, we're uniquely capable and excited to defend ourselves. I think that's one of the, my favorite things now, about not just being an American, but about being a Texan. You know, somebody comes into your lawn, comes into your house, you know, there's an expectation that you'll have to pay for that with your life, you know, and that makes me proud to be, I've bought a house in Texas when I did live in Austin when I do. And it makes me feel safe to know that I'm surrounded by like-minded people. Couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> Couldn't Absolutely. say it better. So I, I, again, I, I would have been remiss to not like bring any of that up, especially with 9-11, um, 20 years. It's crazy, man. To your point, I remember where I was. I was actually a freshman in high school. We were in a, an auditorium for, um, it was a motivational speaker, a guy who I believe his story, he had been like in a car accident, drinking and driving. And so he was coming to tell people, you know, the dangers of that. And he did his whole presentation. And he walked off stage and before we got dismissed, he came back in 
And I remember him saying, uh, I just wanted to make an announcement. There's been a plane that's hit the World Trade Center. And at the time, didn't realize that it was a terrorist attack and uh, went back to the classroom. And within like two or three minutes of sitting down, turned the TV on, saw the second plane hit the tower and instantly knew like, oh, shit, like this isn't what I thought it was. And um, appreciate everything you all of your brothers did and uh the guys that are still over there fighting a good fight for our freedom so that we can sit here and have a conversation on a podcast freely <laughs> about things that are probably going to piss off a lot of other people but we can do that and i really 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 hope if anything can get drawn from the conversations is that we got to be able to talk about it right i mean it's uh there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom with people like yourself who I unfortunately feel like are being, um, you know, kind of silenced in a way. And, and that this should be the first people that we're listening to in a time of crisis right now that we're, I feel, dealing with. So thank you for that. And I, I do want to shift to a more positive conversation, you know, which is beating people senseless inside of a cage and, sh- and strangling them. <laughs> so you've had quite the uh, start to your MMA career. And you're with a great team down in Texas, and they've been hugely supportive of me, action, um, and just love to see what's happening down there. Can you, you know, how has it been? And I guess why 10th Planet? Because there's a lot of great jujitsu schools in, in and around the Austin area. Um, you know, what is it about that group of, of I'll call them misfits. Um, and I say that with a, a big smile on my face because I love all the folks that I've met there. But what is it about this group? that's really resonated with you and, and has allowed you to grow and develop the way that you have? Well, for me, it started with Curtis. Uh, Curtis is the, the guy who built 10 Planet Austin uh, from what I know. I don't know if there's anyone who came before him, but uh, Jiu-Jitsu Jesus is what we called him when his hair was long. <laughs> and uh, Curtis, um, I, I started another job and that job was ridiculous. It was, uh, it was need to be available from seven to 10 o'clock and I was doing construction stuff and, um, I would go to practice, you know, two, three days a week and I'd go back to my ridiculous job and, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I just stopped going one day. I was like, I'll never be able to focus on this and get good enough to be who I want to be. Blah, blah, blah. Got real down on myself. And Curtis sent me an email, a, a text message out of nowhere. And he's like, where you been? And I was like, I didn't even know I was beholden to this man. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know that, you know, he cared enough to like wonder where I was. And he goes, um, we need you back here. Whatever you're doing, I want you to come back here. And I was like, no shit. <laughs> this guy, this guy wants to see me succeed. This guy sees something in me that I hadn't seen in myself. And I was like, okay let's make this work. So I started going every day in the morning and the unique system about the 10th planet, uh, the, the unique thing about the 10th planet system is the letters to the days. Um, it, it took the idea of grappling and the idea of inflicting violence on someone. And it, it helped me to understand it as an art instead of going out to someone and like getting into a storm of fists and grappling and slapping each other and whatever, it helped me to understand that from point A to point B, there are things that you can do to ensure that you're victorious. And it doesn't matter if you're on the top, it doesn't matter if you're on the bottom. Um, If you manipulate your way, your body in these ways, you will successfully uh, neutralize an opponent and that that music that art of your body is it's no different from person to person it's just more efficient as you go from white belt to blue belt to purple belt and for for me that's what got me addicted to 10th planet um, that was emphasized when I learned more about Eddie Bravo and his intention behind the 10th planet system he wanted to make jujitsu viable for MMA. So when he's talking about doing rubber guard, putting his knee behind someone's spine, 
pushing them down and holding them down so that they can't attack you by grabbing onto your own chin, like being safe in that situation was life-changing to me. So I was like, okay, let me take this and see how far I can go with it. And I was stuck on that uh, for my first year. And then Cody Hofstetter shows up. Now, before Cody Hofstetter showed up, there was Andy Craig. And Andy Craig doesn't know this. I was terrified of that man. <laughs> I was terrified of Andy Craig. Uh, we, we, we slowly built up our relationship by, by me attending his classes, of course. But I was scared of him at first. And uh, the, the thing that Cody Hofstetter showed me was that if you want to fight, there is a path for you to be successful. And it he he's not showing all the steps up front, right? We don't need to know all the steps up front. But what he is doing is he's walking us through the path. And I see that. My team sees that. And we we're supported of we're supportive of each other on that path in a way that I hadn't seen people support each other since the military. There's a there's a difference between being on a fight team and working at Walmart. <laughs> and that sounds obvious, but uh, when you work at Walmart, there's a sense of self-preservation that might make you throw a cashier under the bus. You know what I mean? But if you throw your buddy under the bus on a fight team, probably going to get your tail whooped and your buddy's going to get their tail whooped. And it's going to be in public. It's going to be in front of your family and your girlfriend and everyone you ever cared about. And they're going to record it on the media and you're going to see it on Facebook. So being in that situation, we care for and build each other with a tenacity. And that's, that's something specific to 10th Planet Austin. I, I don't know if that's universal, but I do know at 10th Planet Austin, we work every day to seek greatness in each other so that we can build the greatness in ourselves. And I wanna, I wanna give a, uh, I don't know what they call it, a shameless plug. I wanna get a sh give a shameless plug to Veterans Jiu Jitsu run by J Joey Zenti. Uh, Joey is one of the first guys to, uh, to sponsor me. He is the first guy to sponsor me. And uh, he built that network between uh, veterans with the same intention, you know, remind each other what camaraderie is and reminding each other what it is to take care of each other but also find that outlet for that, that aggression and that physicality that us veterans need to like, you know, function like normal people. <laughs> was there any grappling training while you were in the military? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Okay, so in the military, we have something called, in the Marines specifically, we have something called McMap, which is a very structured, organized way of uh, trying to learn to fight. And I'm going to try to show it to you here. What we would do is we would stand online and we'd all get together and they would say, take a stance. We take a stance. And they'd say, throw a cross, throw the cross, stop the bug. And we we're talking about stopping the bug. We we're talking about turning the heel. And then we come back and say, Marine Corps. And that would be the, that would be the instruction. And they would do that piecemeal for, all of the different types of uh, techniques that we'd be set to learn. But that's not where Marines learn to fight. <laughs> where Marines learn to fight is in the barracks. There's a, <laughs> me, me personally, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't what you would call a garrison Marine. I wasn't one of the clean ones, you know? And um, because of that, I was, uh, I was disorganized and I would lose things and I would get in trouble a lot. And, uh, what would happen with me is if someone got mad enough at me to ride me for more than a couple of days or a couple of hours or however long they wanted to talk their smack, I would take my finger and I would put it in the sand. We all lived in the Mojave Desert in 29 Palms. It was hotter than hell all the time, but we were working outside, you know? So I would take my finger, I would put it in the sand and I would draw a line. And I would say, you can cross that line if you want to, and we can have fun. But when we cross that line, we're gonna have our fun. And uh, for the first two years of the military service, that was, that was kind of smiled upon. But <laughs> during the end there, 
after uh, after the first two years, things got a little bit more political, and they didn't want to play that game anymore. But that, that's where that's where the Marines that I was with learned to fight. <laughs> I always ha- I had heard through the grapevine that the Marines were the guys that they they would throw down. So I, you're kind of like validating a little bit that some of the shenanigans that that went on behind closed doors in the barracks. But one of my one of my favorite <laughs> memories is. Uh, we had a dispute. We were weapons platoon, and we had a dispute with one of the uh, one of the elevens platoons. And um, we had a, a platoon on platoon fight. And one of our guys was Sergeant Vincent. And I'm not going to say his first name, but he knows who he is. He's one of the strongest and most terrifying human beings I've ever met. But somebody punched him, and I wanted to react to it. So I'm going to go attack the guy who punched him. And I remember one of my buddies soaring past me in a lateral drop kick position. And this is the guy that punched him. I'm right here. And the two feet that are making contact with this guy are coming across my face. And I'm watching him like this. And boom, he takes him out. And I was just like, well, that's great. I'm going to go find somebody else. That guy's done. <laughs> I love it, man. That was, uh, that was beyond fun. <laughs> so what's next for you? Do you have anything lined up in the moment? For me, I'm, I'm injured. I, uh, That's right. I saw you just had an MRI done, right? Yeah. I, uh, I tore my labrum in that fight against uh, Jeffrey Craig, who's an animal. Me and him are friends now. Love that guy. This is a monster. You know, um, Anyone who beats me is a freaking monster, but that guy's special. And um, when my, with my labrum torn, they, they took a closer look at the MRI, and I've got a, a fractured glenoid rim which is where the humerus sits into the shoulder so i'm working through the process of getting set up with uh, a surgeon they're going to piece me back together and i'll probably unless i get squirrely i might i might talk to my coaches i've been moving a little been moving a little confidently unless i get squirrely i'm probably going to sit until uh, december what kind of recovery things are you doing i know just a lot of people down in texas i've heard a lot about ways to well and different types of stem cell which I know is extremely pricey when you're not a, you know, top tier MMA athlete. Sometimes as I think we've heard a lot, uh, the pay isn't always the greatest with that, but I mean, are you experimenting with, you know, CBD or anything else that's kind of aiding to help get you back in there? Uh, CBD. Um, I love action. Um, it's something that we were talking about with other teams as well, action specifically having that combination of the CBD that you would get from something like smoking marijuana, but also getting the, the um, anti-inflammatory response from the turmeric that's in it. Super helpful. Um, I work with uh, physical therapists through Exos and through the VA. Um, and uh, say the name of that company again. I just got off the phone with them. Ways to well. Ways to well. Yeah. I got it off the, I just got a text message from Kelly and I'm setting up my profile through ways to well. Um, and I'll be seeing them next week. Yeah. Awesome. I've heard so many great things. I think Mary has been doing a lot of things with ways to well too. I, um, I had a knee injury recently and, uh, it's tough up here. I'm in Pittsburgh PA, uh, to find the same type of resources. And, uh, it's the one thing it's like, man, if I was down in Austin, it's they've, they've done such a great job of like making it consumer driven, right. In, in an area where I think a lot of people would never think to on their own, go to be able to get treatment like that. They expect it to come from a doctor. And so to put that power into people's hands and give them the ability to have an, a, a little bit of a different route to healing. I, I think it's fantastic. I hope that they can make it available to as many people that can. Absolutely. And I was putting their names out there, you know, the more people who do it, the cheaper it gets. So that's um, happy to shop them out and say, Hey, uh, get stocked up, get bigger and uh, charge less. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, dude, I, I can't be more thankful for you taking the time to come on here today and uh, tell us about your story. It's uh, people like you, uh, you know, I think, I hope people uh, understand the sacrifices that so many individuals have given at some point in their life and that many continue to give so that we again have this freedom. But um, I can't say it enough, man. Thank you. And very much looking forward to you recovering and getting your ass back in there. 
you're on the top list of guys to watch that are on the come up because you're super exciting. And I just, I love the story. You know, it's, uh, there's, there's substance there and I'm rooting for you. So, uh, looking forward to it. And next time I'm down in Texas, make sure for sh- that, uh, we need to link up and, and spend some time together. Oh yeah. We'll have some fun. We'll probably hit sixth street together or get down to Barton Springs and freeze our tails off. <laughs> I'm excited about it. Hey, thank you so much for the time, man. Absolutely. Most definitely. Thank you.